Amen. Thank you, ladies. Thank you, musicians. Just a few other quick updates. Uh, those of you that let us borrow some VBS decorations, those should all be, if you have not already picked them up, in the resource room. And so if you want to grab those today, please do. We try to put everything somewhat organized back there, but you may have to search for a few things, so see me about that if you could. Uh, praise the Lord for those of you that have been generous and donated to camp scholarships. I think this is one of the biggest years we've had on camp scholarships. We have a dozen teens going to camp early tomorrow morning, and some of that is a direct result. And we were able to give actually all of them scholarships to help ease uh, their load and, and one or two full scholarships just because of need. And so praise the Lord for that. Camp, in my mind, is a big deal. I grew up going to camp. The Lord used camp greatly in my life. Uh, that's where God got really a hold of my heart. I was saved at a young age, but God called me to the ministry at camp. God used camp, and then we worked at camp for many, many years before coming here as well. So I'm looking forward to the teens. We're going to have a great time. I get to drive them up tomorrow, and then I'll actually be turning around and maybe coming straight back, but at least stopping in at uh, the Sondergaard's Church in Shelley, Idaho. MTT with Bob Landis. These are some people that you may know. Some of our missionary friends are there, so we're going to stop in and say hello um, and actually see a family that's traveling with the Landises that we knew from back in South Carolina. So that'll be a sweet time together. Um, Holly Gilbert, our missionary, she is struggling right now with COVID. If you would continue to pray for her. Um, I was told that if she was in the States, she would be in the hospital. But since she's in South Africa, I guess that's not an option for her right now. So she's actually having people come in home to care for her. So it sounds pretty bad right now as far as just her physical strength. So if you would uphold her in prayer right now, I know they're really feeling the effects of COVID nationwide there in South Africa. Second Peter, if you would, Second Peter chapter 3. We'll be in Second Peter for two more weeks. So we have this week and two more weeks following. Lord willing, we will finish out Second Peter. And then at the end of the month, would you pray with me? that Pastor Jeff would be able to preach on a Sunday morning. So we don't, not going to give any guarantees yet, but I, I want to give a little update on him because he's not going to talk about himself, you know, as much. He'll tell you if you ask, but he's in the thick of physical therapy and all of that. I think chiropractor three times a week, physical therapy two times a week. So really it's almost daily that uh, he's going through the rigor and trying to get the strength back in his body. Uh, there's still the physical pain that is still there with arms and back and all of those things. So that's some of the, the prayer and concern that just physically he would be able to be up here and preach. And then uh, there's also the emotional side. And if you've ever been through a traumatic incident as well, just thinking back on those things, uh, I know his desire, if he's going to get up here and preach, would be to be emotionally composed as well. We as a church family, though, we love him, and so we just want him back, is what I've told him. But if, I know those are two, two specific requests and thoughts on his heart, that if you would pray for him for both physical and emotional strength so that he can be back up here preaching soon. And I'm sure you'll be glad then to get rid of me for a little bit as well, even though we've enjoyed our time together. Second Peter chapter 3, we're in the midst of a section talking about the Lord's return, about his coming. So remember briefly, as we, as we walk through the book, Second Peter is the Apostle Peter's final words. It's his last words. It's really his whole life sayings of what he desires and what he wants for believers. And his theme verse is at the very end, and we'll get there in a couple weeks, but it is this, 
but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's Peter's desire for all believers. And here, even 2,000 years later, that's the same desire he has for us. So he writes this epistle, only three chapters long, but he shows us the salvation that we have, that we have the same precious faith. We're the same standing before God that even the apostles are. There's not some sort of different gradient when it comes to our salvation and our standing before God. Why is that? Because it's based on Jesus, not based on us. It's about Jesus and not us. And so he goes right into that saying, God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And that is an amazing and sweet promise that I need even today. And he shows us what it looks like to live a Christian life, the portrait of Christ-likeness. And he says we can trust all of that at the end of chapter one because of the certain and true word that God has given us. And then he spends all of chapter two talking about the people that would go against God's word, the false teachers, and, say, and telling us to be on the lookout and who they are and what they're like and what to do with them. And then here in chapter three, we've been looking at then the return of Christ, another major theme in this book, that Jesus is coming. He's coming again. And it's certain and assured, just like he came the first time, we will see him when he comes the second time. But there are those, he started out, that scoff. So we looked a couple weeks ago at those who scoff at his coming. They say, it's never going to happen. And how we shouldn't be taken by surprise, because that's just a reality of the world we live in. People don't believe the word. They don't believe the Bible. They don't have a relationship with God. So of course they're going to scoff. But then the question comes, well, why hasn't he come back yet? I want him to come back. And so then Peter says, well, we need to wait patiently for his coming. And his long suffering is not because he's just waiting around. It's so more people will get saved. In other words, God is very, very specific in why he hasn't come back yet. It's because he wants more people to come to a knowledge of him. And then today we're going to close out this section on his second coming. And we're going to look and see that there are, we need to be people people specifically who effectively prepare for his coming. So today in our time, we're going to look at those who effectively prepare for his coming. Today is the 4th of July. It's a fun time, right? We got the colors out here. The fellowship hall is decorated red, white, and blue. Some of you, many of you, if not all of you, are, are decorated in those or wearing those colors as well. We love our country. And you think back to the founding of our country, and we wrote this really cool document, a breakup letter with Great Britain, right? Called the Declaration of Independence. We're going to be independent. And what did that take? Well, you think, you think back to some of those first leaders. And of course, the first person that comes to my mind is, is George Washington, our first president. What was he also known as? Well, a great military leader. If you would look, though, at George Washington's military record, you know what it would look like? We do, with the, we do this with coaches, right? We, we say their winning percentage, how many uh, games they've won and lost. Unfortunately, George Washington, on the battle part, has way more losses than wins. Did you know that? Of all of his military exploits. In fact, he didn't start out as some great military leader. He had to grow into that. And so if you look at just those two facts, you probably wouldn't hire him, right, as your coach or as your captain or your commander 
And yet what happened in the end? It wasn't really the battles that mattered because we won the war, right? And what, what is one of the most famous portraits of George Washington? One of my friends has it on their wall, and it's George Washington crossing the Delaware, right? And there he is standing, wig blowing in the wind, on his, his little boat, crossing that 400-yard stretch of water, with some of his troops, not all of them made it across. He wanted three crossings. I think only the main group crossed over. And this was when, Christmas night, cold, frigid, rain, unexpected weather that came with that. And what, is, what was the motto going in, into that battle? Do you know? It was victory or death. What a great, <laughs> what a great motivator. You either win or you lose. That was, the, that was his basic cry of, of those men crossing the Delaware. And he brought them over, and of course they you know, had to ferry people back and forth, back and forth, and they're waiting, and why are they crossing? It, it's so that they can narrow down, I believe, the up, upwards of 8,000 redcoats that were waiting to three, just a few bridge crossings. And they didn't have that many people either, and yet, during that, that battle unfolding over the next you know, period of days, they were able to win a decisive victory that not just showed, okay, we can fight, but it gave, of course, morale to the men there. Now, was George Washington with his men at all times? Was he with his army at all times? No, there was times where he would leave them to go attend to other things, go to attend to other groups, and then come back. So when George Washington leaves his army or part of it at a place what are they supposed to do? What is the army supposed to be doing? He says, I want you stationed here, and I want you to sit around and twiddle your thumbs, right? That was the goal. Or I want you to sit around and talk about the weather and all the, the things that you had back at home and everyone that you miss. And I want you to have just this big pity party, right? No, what were the soldiers supposed to be doing? They were supposed to be preparing, right? They were supposed to be training. They were supposed to be planning and expecting what is the next battle going to be like? What do we need to prepare for? And what did that look like? Well, they had their guns, amen, right, here in Idaho. But they didn't, you know, it was just the muskets, and you didn't want to get water down the barrel. You didn't want to leave that sit. And so they would train, they would practice, even the reloading, and all of those things, they were preparing for when Washington would come back and they would launch out into their next battle or escapade. And as we look at 2 Peter, we're going to see here that Peter calls us not just to sit around and dilly-dally, but actually to be proactive about the Lord's return. And the fact that Jesus is coming in again has great implications for our lives as believers right now. Let's look at 2 Peter chapter 3. And we'll be reading verses 11 through 13. So just these three verses. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. Would you read out loud these verses with me, please, now? 2 Peter 3, verse 11. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? looking for and hastening unto the coming day of God, 
wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. So those who effectively prepare for his coming. We see, starting in verse 11, that Peter is going to call us to faithfully live a Christ-centered life. He's saying, even though Christ hasn't returned yet, here's what you need to be doing. There's a faithfulness and there's a living out of your life and what it and who is it based on. It's all based on Jesus. It's all based on who he is. In other words, you're not just, as Monty talked about in Sunday school, it's not just putting on these good works and acting like a Christian. In each of these verses, we'll see it all points back to Christ and him empowering and enabling us even though he's not here physically with us yet. So faithfully live a Christ-centered life. Look back at verse 11. He says, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. What does it mean to be dissolved? We have a little hummingbird feeder out front. And what do you put in a hummingbird feeder? Water and sugar. And that's really, that's all you need, right? And the hummingbirds eventually will come. In fact, Pastor Jeff loves tracking when they show up each year. He has it on his calendar. And he was a little bit jealous that I had hummingbirds, I think a day or two before him. But that's okay, we're still friends. Venice beat us by a day and she lives across the street. So I think it was just moving that way. But in that, in that hummingbird feeder, when you, look at, when you look at it right now, what does it look like? It really just looks like water. And why is that? That sugar has just disappeared. It's been dissolved into it. In a sense, it's, it's gone, even though we know it's it's still in that solution. Peter starts out saying, seeing then that all these things shall disappear. And what is he saying? Well, you'll notice seeing then is talking about a certainty, a certain fact. In other words, just as real as you can see with your eyes right now. And isn't that what the world does? They say, I'm not going to believe it unless I see it. Peter is saying, it doesn't matter if you want to see it or not. The idea here is God's promise is sure it's going to happen. And what is going to happen? All these things. What are all these things? Everything that he's just talked about, the heavens, the earth, really the physical makeup that is everything. And he said everything that you can see right now is going to be dissolved. And he's going to reiterate this idea in each of our verses over and over and over again. In other words, Peter is trying to make a point. He's trying to get us to realize that what we have as far as the material possessions and things in the earth right now, it's all going to burn up. It's all going to be dissolved. So think about all the things that you have. Your beautiful house. It's going to burn up going to fall over. I know, we paid so much money for it. We worked so hard for it, right? It's not going to last forever. What about all the clothes that you have? Nicely adorned, right? We have some great clothes, spend a lot of money. They wear out. It's going to be dissolved. Not going to last forever. The nice vehicle that you drive, all of your toys, as they say, parked in your garage, they work great for a while, gonna be dissolved. The work of your own hands, 
Some of you worked hard. Like, I'm even thinking of VBS. There were some very creative people that took the talents that God gives them with their hands and made some pretty cool decorations. It's amazing. Not going to last forever, are they? And so Peter is reminding us that all things, the physical, shall melt away. They're transitory. Or how about this? A word that Solomon likes to use, they're vanity. And what is vanity? It's like your breath on a cold day. You breathe it out, you see that vapor, and it disappears. So what is Peter getting at? Is he saying, well, then don't have cars, don't have houses, don't have clothes, and don't work at VBS. Is that what Peter's point is? He's saying, no, not at all. But he's saying, you must realize this, you, sh you better not be putting your hope and your trust and your satisfaction and your joy and your whole life into things that are just going to melt away. Because that's not what it's about. That's not what your life should be about. So he's saying, since everything else is going to melt away and be dissolved, and there's going to be nothing left because there'll be a new heaven, a new earth, he asks this question. I love questions because it pricks the heart. It gets us to think. Peter says, middle of verse 11, what manner of persons ought ye to be? Has someone ever come up to you, maybe it's a boss, maybe it's a parent, and they said, you ought to be or behave or do it in this way. We often have our own ways of doing things, right? So, you know, we like, we like going out, we say, I know how to do this, or I know how to live, and someone comes alongside and says, that's not quite how you should be doing things. How does that hit us? Well, oftentimes, you know, we have that little jolt of pride and say, wait a minute, I know what I'm doing. Who are you to tell me, right? Well, I'm your parent. I can, I'm your authority. Or I'm your boss. I can withhold your pay. You know, so okay, I'll, I'll submit to that. But the motivation here isn't, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to beat you over the head if you, if you don't follow me and you don't act like Christ. The motivation here is, I have given you everything you need for life and godliness. I am with you and I will be with you, and I'm creating for you an eternal state that you can't even imagine, that I can be with you forever. And it's that kind of love that is driving this statement. The temporal's going away, so what manner of person ought ye to be? So what kind of person, what sort of person, really the question is, who are you really? What are you like? How would you define yourself? Now, God has given us each unique talents and spiritual gifts in different ways and thinking and different life experiences. I'm not negating any of those. Those are good things. But at the base, at the core, what Peter is saying, he goes on to say, in all holy conversation and godliness. In other words, if someone was to define your life or if you want to look at it in the very bleak but real way, what would your tombstone say? You don't usually get to decide that, right? It's those that come after you, they get to write what? It's not a paragraph. It's not a book. Sometimes it's not even a whole tweet. It could be just a few words. And Peter is saying, what's going to define your life in just a few words? 
And he's saying since everything's dissolved, going to melt away, he uses the words holy conversation and godliness. And he's, he's coming to this point and saying you need to stop, you need to consider, you need to look at our own hearts and say, does that define my own life? Because if Christ is in me, we should be growing in those things. Notice these other parallel passages to this. Philippians 3.20, Paul writes, For conversation, or our lifestyle, is in heaven, from whence we also look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, our focus, while there's many temporal things, it's really on heavenly things. It's for heavenly purposes. And I've said this before, but it blows my mind that God allows us to use temporal things that are going to melt away for eternal purposes. Temporal things like the, the amazing VBS decorations, and yet we had eternal impact through that, did we not? Or the temporal things as this building with its lovely air conditioning, so we're not outside in the hundred whatever, and, the, and the, the cushion chairs that you're on, they're very temporal things, but yet has not God allowed us to use very temporal things for eternal purposes? And that, I believe, is how we should look really at all of our temporal things, whether it's our house, our clothing, the motorcycle or ATV, the camper in your garage. How can I use this temporal thing for eternity? Because our conversation, our life is in heaven. Peter, he writes in his first epistle, the very first verse, 1 Peter 1.1, he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and then he addresses that letter to the strangers, scattered throughout, and he lists several areas. So how does he refer to believers? Peter's realized that we're strangers. And we, we think of that old song, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through, right? We're strangers here on this earth because it's temporal. It's not what holds the reality. And so then John encourage us, encourages us in 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17, very familiar verses He's saying if it's temporal, then love not the world, the system, all of that that is opposed to God. Neither the things that are in the world. Why? Well, if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world, and the world passeth away. But... He that doeth the will of God abideth forever. So what manners of persons ought ye to be? Do you love America? Is America the greatest country on earth? So can I say that humbly that I believe it is? I, I think it's amazing what has happened here. And not only are we in America, but we're in Idaho. Amen. It's like the promised part of the promised land. We got milk and honey and guns and everything. Mountains, <laughs> elk, I mean, it's all great. Now, obviously America has had its set of problems, but I, I even look back on my family's history. My family history is Mennonite, and so if you don't know, Mennonite is pacifist, so they weren't willing to pick up the gun. But we were very thankful for those who did because we fled Prussia, persecution that was faced there, came across the ocean, Ellis Island, came through there, train down to Kansas, wheat farmer for several generations. My grandfather, who just passed away, wheat farmer, I grew up on his farm helping him. Godly man. 
And, and in my mind, very thankful that there were, were those that were willing to fight for the freedom so that now I live in America and have those freedoms. And then, of course, when I was young, we started going to a Baptist church and I learned what guns were and all of those things. <laughs> but we can look at America and say, I love America. I'm glad for America. I'm, I'm thankful for what God has done, even though, you know, we could name many sins of America as well. But may I remind us that America is not heaven. Idaho even is not heaven. I know that's hard for some of you to believe. Idaho is not the true promised land. So as much as even we love something, remember even that is temporal. And there's a new heaven and new earth that we are striving for and living for. So what do we look for or how should we live well, Peter goes on then, if you're going to faithfully live this Christ-centered life, you realize that this world is temporal, and so I ought to be the type of person that is defined by these things. He says, in all holy conversation and godliness. What is all holy conversation? Well, if you look at the word holy, holy describes, is really an attribute that God and God alone possesses. Because he is perfectly set apart, holy means that, set apart in its basic definition. He's set apart from sin, but really set apart from everything else too. In other words, there's nothing that you can really compare God to. We, we sometimes say God is like this, and God is like this, and God is like this. But God has no equal. He's totally holy and totally set apart. So when it comes to a believer's life, we're actually reflecting that because God Christ is within us. And then we're, we're living out that holiness that looks like it, it, it is set apart from sin. That's often what we think of, of, of as holy. Don't touch the bad thing. But that's not all that holiness is because if you're truly reflecting the character of God, you're not just set apart from God says, no, 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 no. Okay, I'm not going to do all those things. It's actually consecrated unto God as well. So it has both the positive and the negative to it. So when he says all holy conversation, what he's saying is all of your life should reflect this attribute of God's holiness, that you're going to be separate from sin because Christ is within you. But you're going to be holy, all completely consecrated to God. And what that looks like is that it, 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 it's this saying, every morning I get up and say, Lord, what do you want? Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to think? What do you want me to desire? Lord, this life is yours. And if we're to stop and ask ourselves that question, is that how I live my life? I look at my own life and I can see, no. I'm not always thinking about the eternal. I'm not always thinking how Christ is coming again. And really what that results is, I'm not always thinking in how I need to be living daily to say, Lord, this is your life. So he's saying in all holy conversation, the conversation is our mode of life, our conduct, that we're to live worthy lives because of what will come. You see how Christ coming again, even though it's a future event, has great impact on you and me right now. But then he goes on to say, not just in all holy conversation, but also godliness. Now we've looked at this word a few times before. It has really not just an external thing, but it's really an internal thing, where he's saying an internal heart attitude and reverence. 
Can you have a child that obeys you, but the heart is rebellious? Can you have a worker or a co-worker that checks the boxes, but you wouldn't trust them or their fixes or their work? In other words, they're doing everything by the book. They can pass inspection, but you're like, I would never hire them. And Peter is saying here, that's not what a Christian life looks like. If Christ is in you, there's going to be a desire towards godliness, an internal desire. One commentator gave these seven components of godliness that I think are helpful and they're found throughout Scripture. If we have this internal heart attitude and reverence, what does it actually look like? Well, it looks like an eternal perspective. In other words, we're going to have an eternal perspective. We've already talked about that. If we're practicing godliness and godliness is being fleshed out, we're going to have an internal peace. In other words, Christ has promised that to us over and over and again. Peace I give you. Not the world, like the world gives, but I give you true, everlasting peace. There's going to be a component of practical purity. In other words, I'm not just going to jump in the mud with all the other pigs, because I'm not a pig anymore. As we looked at several weeks ago, I'm one of Christ's sheep. What about this? Faithful proclamation. If I am godly, I'm going to want to tell others about it, and I'm going to be truthful and loving. Is that not hard in today's culture? Because if you tell the truth, what are you immediately accused of? You're not loving. And yet, Christ was able to do both. He had strong words for those that needed it, but yet compassion on the multitudes because it's like a sheep without a shepherd. What about this? Doctrinal perceptiveness. In other words, you're going to be keen on what the truth of Scripture says, and that's how you're going to align your life. It's really taking scripture and says, how, how does this apply to me? You can come to church, and some of you have been coming to church for a long time, right? Maybe all of your life. And you've heard who knows how many hundreds, thousands of sermons ex- exhorting you to live according to God's word. You can hear all of that, you know, and never actually personally apply it. And here's Peter's admonition when it comes to godliness. He's saying, take God's word and ask this question, what does it mean for me? How do I apply this in my life? What does God want me to do with this, to live? There's also the idea of spiritual progress in this idea of godliness. In other words, when you get saved, are you instantly just like Jesus? No. There's a growth, and that's a good thing. There's a spiritual growth. That's why Peter says at the end of this chapter, but grow in grace. Peter realizes we're not perfect. And we looked at Peter's life and he knew he wasn't perfect. How many times does Peter mess up? And yet God used him greatly and in a great way. And so there's spiritual progress and then continual praise. I'm praising God for who he is and what he's done. So that's the idea of holy conversation and godliness. I want to turn to Matthew 24, if you would, please. We're going to be turning back to this passage a few times in our time together. Matthew 24 and 25, Christ gives several parables of the end, of his coming again. And I love it because I think Peter might have had these exact parables in mind when he wrote these three verses, because they line up very well with these ideas. 
So we've been talking about faithfully living a Christ-centered life. Well, look at Matthew 24. Christ gives the first of these parables, and it's down in verses 45 through 51. So it's the end of this chapter, going in then to chapter 25. And he gives the parable of a faithful and wise servant. Look at Matthew 24, verse 45, where Jesus says, Who then is a faithful and wise servant, whom his Lord hath made ruler over his household, to give them meat in due season. Blessed is a servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Verily I say unto you that he shall make him ruler over all his goods. So what's the, the idea here? There's a faithful servant and the master's going away and he says, faithful servant, I want you to be in charge, to take care of the house, to make sure everyone gets the food to eat, that the business continues to go forward. I trust you. I'm going to put you in charge when I leave. But he contrasts that to what would it be like if that faithful servant was bad. Verse 48, But, and if that evil servant shall say in his heart, My Lord delayeth his coming, and shall begin to smite his fellow servants, and to eat and drink with the drunken, the Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looketh not for him, and in an hour when he is not aware, and shall cut him asunder, and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What is he saying? The Lord's true servant, when he goes away, is going to live a life that reflects the master and all that the master has done. So that when the master comes back, he's saying, yeah, this is a good and faithful servant that I've set in charge. And you don't know when the master's coming back, just like we don't know when Christ is coming back. So what is the application? Well, then there's no opportunity to beat one another up because we don't know when Jesus is coming back. There's really no opportunity to squander the resources God has given us because he could come back at any time. There's no opportunity to live and act like the world around us because that's not what God has called us to as his faithful servant. So faithfully live a Christ-centered life. Back in 2 Peter. Secondly, if we're going to effectively prepare for his coming, we don't, we don't just live a Christ-centered life. There's a desire for Christ's return. So Peter then goes on to say in verse 12 of 2 Peter 3, earnestly desire Christ's return. Look at verse 12. He says, looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God. What is the idea here? Well, he gives two ideas of looking and hastening. What does it mean to look for? Well, it's the idea of expectation, of mental focus and direction. You're waiting for someone, you haven't seen them in a long time, and you say any moment they could come over the horizon and I can see them. Today we have the luxury of GPS systems. We can even share our locations with one another. So our families on long trips will often do that. We can see them on the map moving towards us. And we know the moment they pull into our subdivision and they, they turn each corner. And what can we joyously do? Spread the curtains open and we're waiting expectantly, looking for them to turn right onto our street and pull into our driveway. That's the looking forward to. And then hastening unto that word hastening has the idea of desiring earnestly, an eagerness that fills the heart. And in this, there's no fear of destruction or coming punishment. The desire is to be with the person coming. 
Children are a great example of this, right? We told them VBS is coming, and they were so excited, right? Dad, is it VBS yet? Is it VBS? Every morning, do we get to go to church and go to VBS? Or as Ezzy would sometimes get the letters wrong, and it was BVS. He would mispronounce it. So cute. Dad, is it time? I'm, I'm eager. It fills my heart and my thoughts. And your kids have done it too, right? With birthdays or Christmas, whatever it may be. Is it today? Is it today? Is it today? And that's the desire we as believers should have. Let me ask you this question though. What gets us disconnected from that desire? In other words, I want Jesus to come back, right? Later. <laughs> I, I want him to come just not today. Why would we have that desire in our heart? Well, there could be many reasons. Some of it goes back to the previous verse. We're so focused on the here and now that we say, Lord, I just don't have time for you to come back yet. Some of it, it may be, wait, I'm not living in a way, you know, I wouldn't want him to to catch me right now because my life is really not going in the right direction. And so that's where Peter is saying, well, your desire really daily should be looking, earnestly desiring for what? The coming day of the Lord. That word coming is used over and over to talk about Christ's second return. And it really has the idea of the presence of him. The arrival. He's finally here. What's the point? The point is you're going to be with Jesus. You're going to be with him. You're going to be with him forever. And I love this thought because it helps me right now. If I'm at, if I'm at enmity with another believer, this thought helps me because I have to be with that person forever. You realize that? It cracks me up in some ways. Our destiny is to live in the new heavens and new earth forever in a perfect world. That is our destiny. That's what is going to happen if you're a believer. And so, why not actually try to live that way right now? In other words, is Christ's forgiveness big enough in your life that we can forgive others? His forgiveness is unlimited. We can't even comprehend it. So yes, absolutely. Is his grace and his love and his compassion for me big enough that I can show that and share that with others? Absolutely. So he's coming and it helps me even in my life right now that I'm going to be with God. I'm going to be with him in the new heaven and new earth. So why not live like it right now? So the coming day of God, this day of God, usually we think of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is at that time of destruction and judgment. And I believe that the day of the God is, it has all that included, but really the focus is right after when we're actually with him, that new heaven, that new earth. And he's saying what we're looking forward to is actually being with him in that perfect place. We call it heaven, but it's really a new heaven and new earth as we'll see. Because he goes on to say, In the rest of verse 12, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall burn with fervent heat. It ain't going to last and it's all going to be burned up. He reiterates that again. So he says, because it ain't going to last and because it's going to burn up, desire his return where you're actually with him forever. So how do we effectively prepare for his coming? We've seen we faithfully live a Christ-centered life 
we earnestly desire Christ's return. And then thirdly, verse 13, we continually trust the promises of Christ. Continually trust. When you're away from a loved one for an extended period of time, there are things you do though, right? You still reminisce. You remember the good times. You remember the times that you were with each other. And you look forward to the time that you can be with one another again. In just a couple weeks, I'm really excited. Samantha's parents are going to be here for a whirlwind trip. So they're finally going to come to the promised land. They've never been west of Kansas. So they're finally going to see real mountains. And we're going to spend, spend just a few days with them because they're farmers. And of course, you can only leave the animals for so long. So it's going to be a whirlwind trip. But we haven't seen them since we've been out here. So it's been several years, a couple years now. And that's going to be a sweet time of rejoicing together. It's going to be way better than just the video calls on our phone. We actually get a touch and hug and talk and just enjoy one another's company together. And so they've, they've, they have this promise, and thankfully the airline has a promise too. We'll see if they uphold their end of the promise. They gave them some money, and the airline promised to fly them here. And so there's all these promises in place that we're looking forward and expecting and wanting to be fulfilled. Well, it comes to Christ's promise there's no worry. There's no concern. He's going to fulfill his promise. So how, how do we look at that? Well, look at verse 13. It says, nevertheless, we. In other words, in spite of all that's going to happen and everything's going to get destroyed, what's the focus? Well, we, who is he talking about? He's talking about believers, those who he's been writing to, the beloved. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, in other words, it's rooted and based in the promise of God, the certain and sure and trustworthy word of God. According to that, we look, we anticipate a new heaven and a new earth. Do we need a new heaven and a new earth? In other words, is there anything messed up right now? Say absolutely. Notice, though, the physical doesn't just get replaced. It's not just we get a new heaven and a new earth. Notice, I love how he ends this, this part. Wherein dwelleth righteousness. You look at our culture today, does righteousness dwell here? I think we, we could say a lot of other things dwell. <laughs> a lot of other things have taken up residence. But in the new heaven and the new earth, righteousness is going to dwell. And it's based on what? The sure according to his sure promises, the promise of God. You're supposed to trust your parents, right? Uh, they, they often say, you know, good moms let their kids lick the beaters with frosting on them. Great moms turn the beater off first. <laughs> and I don't know if your mom's ever let you do that. Usually it's not still stuck in the machine. But if she would she would leave them in the beater and bring them up to you. The cord's still plugged in. But she says, I promise. I promise I won't turn it on. How much trust do you have in your mom with that? My wife would have zero trust in me at that instance because she knows, she knows I like to prank sometimes. But it's, it's not something where we have to debate is God really going to come back? Is God really going to do this? No, it's, it's a, sh a certain and sure promise. 
So what do we do? We anticipate and we look forward to his coming by continually, daily trusting God, you've promised that you're coming, so that's how I'm going to order and line and live my life. So what does that look like day to day? What does it look like to continually trust the promise that Jesus is coming again and Jesus is going to make all things right and Jesus is going to make a new heaven and a new earth and Jesus is coming to make righteousness the rule of eternity? What does it look like if you actually, I say actually, if we actually believe that? If you believe that that's what it, what eternity is for you, for me, because of what Jesus has done, what does that look like for you today? Doesn't that give you a different perspective on your entire life? Righteousness is going to dwell forever. Lord, I want your righteousness to dwell in me right now. Lord, it's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. Help me use the things that are temporal for something that's going to make that eternal impact. What has eternity taped onto it? And you can't, you can't separate it. In other words, if you take the sticker of eternity and place it on something, you wouldn't be placing it on the floor. You wouldn't place it on a chair. You wouldn't place eternity on your vehicle out there. Where would you put the sticker of eternity? And the simple answer is people, right? It's on people. And so that really is the focus then too of the believer's life. How many people, if you want to look at it, this it's not really how it works, but how many people are you taking with you to the new heaven and new earth? I know that's not really how it works because it's God the one that is the one who saves and, and Christ is the one that's going to, to bring them. But how many people are going to be affected by your life today that's going to have an eternal impact? And to me, that, that's a big, that's a heavy thought. Because if this is our destiny, if this is what we are destined to be and to do, it should affect all areas of our life. Tomorrow we're going to do a very temporal thing. We're going to load up a van that's going to, you know, one day break down and never be repaired. And we're going to take all these suitcases, hopefully not too many ladies, right, as Pastor said. And we're going to put them in a trailer. And all those suitcases and that trailer is going to burn up or be destroyed or, or disappear at some point. The van as well. Even the bodies in the trailer. Or in, in the van. I joke that I might put a few of the teen boys back there. <clears throat> it's all going to disappear. But what are we trying to do with that? We're, we're trying to impress upon our teens the importance of getting away for a week, hearing God's word for a week, fellowshipping with other believers. And some of you have given very temporal things. You put money in the offering plate, as temporal as that is. And yet I believe God is going to bless that greatly. And it's going to have eternal impact. And praise the Lord that he allows us to use temporal things for his glory. Let's, let's end in Matthew 24. Matthew 25, I'm sorry. We're, we're turning over to the next chapter. Matthew 25. Where Jesus gives two more parables. 
about his coming back that show this, this, this need to earnestly desire his return and to continually trust the promises of God. Matthew 25, it gives a parable. Uh, we say the ten virgins or the ten young ladies that were looking forward to going to a wedding. It says, Matthew 25, Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise, and five were foolish. And they that were foolish took their lamps, but they took no oil with them. You need oil for your lamp to work. But the wise, the wise ones, took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. He was taking too long to get there. They wanted to be at, at the wedding party is really what it was. But you had to be there when he got there. Otherwise, you couldn't gain entrance. So you had to be ready for him to come at any moment. And it was at the middle of the night, verse 6, At midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go you out to meet him. And all the virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. So they had their lamps. They had them trimmed. All ten of them were ready to go. No. Why not? Verse 8, The foolish said unto the wise, Give us your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you. But go ye rather to them that sell and buy yourselves. Remember, this is midnight. I don't think anything was open then. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went into him with the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterwards also came the other virgin, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us. But he answered and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I know you not. So what does Jesus say the application is? Watch, therefore. That idea of earnestly desire Christ's return. Watch, look. For ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. Are you ready? Are you ready for Jesus to come back? He could come today. What about trusting in the promises of God? We'll close with this. Verses 14 gives another parable where he says, The kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country who called his own servants and delivered them unto his goods. And one... He gave five talents, and to another two, and to another one. One talent is about 20 years' wages, and so five talents would be a lifetime inheritance. It'd be a large sum. But he gave to every man according to his several ability, and straightway took his journey. And in that it is implied, I'm coming back. There's a promise of, I'm returning. And he that had received five talents went and traded the same and made them other five talents. The idea is he invested and he doubled his investment. And likewise, he that received two, he also gained another two. He doubled his investment. But he that received one went and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. So what does that one do? Well, I don't have that much. You know, he didn't give me as many talents or abilities as others, so I'm just going to hide it. Not really let others know I'm a believer is the idea. You know, I'm just going to hide that all. Well, what happened? It says, after a long time, verse 19, the Lord of those servants cometh and reckoneth with them, bring them to account. And so he that received five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, I have delivered unto thee five talents. Behold, I have gained beside them five talents more. And his Lord said unto him, well done, Thou good and faithful servant, 
Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. You want verse 21 to be said of you? Amen. Verse 22, And he also that received two talents came and said, Lord, thou delivered unto me two talents. Behold, I have gained other two talents beside them. And his Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. They invested what God gave them. But what did the final servant do? Then he which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew that thou art a hard man, reaping what thou hast not sown, and gathering what thou hast not strewn. And was afraid, and went, and hid thy talent in the earth. And lo, thou ha- what thou hast is thine. What is he doing? He's living in fear, and not the promise of what he knows his Lord to be. His Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knewest I reap where I sowed not, and gather where I hath not strawn. Thou oughtest therefore to have put my money to the exchangers, then at my continuing I should have received mine own with usury or interest. Take therefore the talent from him, and give it to him that hath ten talents. So what's the application? Well, Jesus tells us, verse 29, For every one that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Where's your treasure? What are you doing with the life, the talent that God has given you? May God give us the grace to effectively prepare for his coming by faithfully living a Christ-centered life, by earnestly desiring Christ's return, and by continually trusting the promises of God.